Hello and welcome to Rebooting. I'm Lisa Forte and this week we have a man who has worked in computer security since the early 90s. He programmed the first ever version of Dr. Solomon's antivirus toolkit for Windows and he worked for Sophos for many years but he's now a household name in information security. He's an internationally successful blogger, podcaster and speaker, not to mention the originator of the phrase, the cloud is just someone else's computer. I am, of course, talking about co-founder of Smashing Security, Mr. Graham Cluley. Welcome, Graham. Well, hello, hello. What a pleasure it is to be here rebooting with you, Lisa. I know. What a lovely setting you have as well. Oh, thank you very much. This is, this is this is actually the podcast Pleasure Palace. Oh, so we're staying heard. inside of Smashing this, Security. Yeah, this is a rare glimpse inside the HQ. <laughs> some people think it's all done inside a volcano, like some sort of Bond villain. But it's actually done at the bottom of a garden. Graham, I must ask you this. I asked all my guests this at the beginning. Yes. How would your family, do you think, describe what you do for a living? Oh, <laughs> they just think I ask about. I think. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 my family are just baffled as to how I managed to earn a living. Because they think, well, doesn't, isn't that just plain? Isn't that just messing around? And they say, do, do people actually pay you to do that? And... <laughs> I'm equally baffled. I, I mean, people people ask me questions all the time. Uh, so I'll, I'll be speaking to journalists about some sort of computer security thing which is going on. And uh, the most difficult question they ask of all, the one which is hardest of all is, how should we describe you? What title should we give you? Because I work for myself and I, I don't really have a title. I don't know how to describe myself. And that's often the most difficult question. But obviously you've been, you're a bit of a veteran in the security industry. And, um, you know, you've seen probably quite a lot of transformation from when you first started to where we are sort of today. And one yeah. of our subscribers has asked, what was your sort of the top or the most interesting virus you ever came across when you were at the beginning of your career? Oh, my goodness. I mean, they've been, I actually think viruses and malware were much more interesting in the early days than they are today. Really? Because now... Oh, yeah. Now it's all about stealing information or stealing resources or making money. And there was actually great artistry in the malware of the early days. So you'd get things like the green caterpillar virus, which sort of crawled across your screen, eating them up and then pooing them out the other end brown. Or you'd have ambulances going across your screen or, you know, or there was one where it played the Blue Danube, um, or, or, you know, just things like that. And they were just being done really as a form of electronic graffiti. It was still wrong and they shouldn't have written viruses, obviously, and it was a bad thing to do. But there was some artistry there. And creative prowess. There was. And there has been there has been a little bit of a resurgence of this with ransomware, of course, because ransomware is an unusual type of malware in so much as it wants to announce its presence at some point. And it wants to get your attention. It doesn't want you to ignore it. And so it will have gory skulls, you know, dripping blood and things like that as it tells you to give all your Bitcoins to them. Um, but, yeah, in, in the old days, they were much more fun. Now, if you were to ask me what, what my, my, I've got a few favourite viruses. I'm not supposed to have favourites, but, you know, <laughs> bad. but there, there are a few which sort of appeal to my, my sort of sense of humour, which is quite childish. Um, there is the casino virus which plays Russian roulette with your data. And what it does is it says, think of a number between one and 10. And so it says, I, I, I've taken your essential data. I put it into memory. So if you turn off your computer, you're going to lose everything. And it intercepts control, delete, and you, you lose all your data. The thing which I like about that is sometimes you get the number right. 
and get your data back. Quite often you get the number wrong and you lose all your data, but just occasionally, just occasionally, you get the number right. It says, yeah, you got the number right, but I'm going to shag your hard drive anyway. And that's, that to me, is <laughs> quite funny. It's and what you so, live for. That's, that's what you live for, isn't it? Well, it's just a black sense of humour because you just think, oh, they, they must have had so much fun doing that. Now, obviously that's wrong. <laughs> Let me stress that. Are we recording this? Obviously that's this is wrong. on the record, right? You get that. It's, it's definitely <laughs> wrong. And, you, and it sort of underlines the fact that you should, you should make backups. There was another virus, a famous uh, female virus writer called Gigabyte. Uh, real name, Kim van de Vayek. I think she's based in Belgium, one of those sort of places. And um, she became a little bit obsessed with me in my younger years. Yes, I know. And uh, I, I like to think it was the cut of my jib. But apparently she thought I was saying that girls couldn't write viruses, right? Because I was often asked in person, you know, who writes viruses? And I'd say, well, it's teenage boys in their back bedrooms. And the right. point I was making was actually girls are too sensible to write viruses because writing viruses at the time didn't make you any money. It was just vandalism. Mm -hmm. And girls were into, you know, cooler things and more, more, more sort of constructive things. Anyway, she took offense at this. And so she started writing viruses which mentioned me. And one of them asked um, what I kept between my toes, which I think was like a, a cheese and gerbil sandwich or something was the correct answer. If you said that, you got your data back. There was another one, though, a coconut virus, the coconut virus, which displayed my picture on your screen. And you had to throw coconuts at my, <laughs> at my head. And <laughs> the more times you hit me with a coconut, the less files she would infect on your hard drive. Now, you can't help but admire something like that because that's a sense of humour. And um, the guys in our labs who were analysing it, they took an inordinate amount. They kept on saying, oh, no, we need to test this a few more hours, Graham. They kept on throwing coconuts at me. But uh, it's so that so on a personal level, those ones sort of are, are a bit special to me. You blog a lot now and yeah. your blog is, you know, obviously incredibly famous. Do you have you ever had a situation where you've written a story and you sort of regretted writing it or you've had a bit of a backlash <laughs> from it that you perhaps weren't expecting? Yes, uh, <laughs> that has happened. Uh, and sometimes it's because I, I, I can be a little bit flippant um, and, you know, might, might, might have just said something off the cuff, as we've seen, which I then regret. <laughs> it's been immortalised. Uh, the beauty with a blog, of course, is that you can go back and sort of adjust it or add another right. paragraph or, or, or apologise. Um, Sometimes I've just downright made mistakes. You know, I, I've said that something happened and it turned out it didn't happen. You know, I thought, well, this is most likely the reason. And and I think it's important then to, to go back and say, I got it wrong, you know, messed up. Yeah. And I think that's quite an ethical approach and, and sort of speaking on ethics. And I guess this kind of feeds into um, blogging generally. Um, I know you must have had sort of criminals contacting you and offering you juicy um, scoops or um, breaches that they are in the middle of um, and how does that kind of go have you ever been in a situation where you really felt tempted to sort of say yes I'll write this story it is difficult isn't it I think I, I think it's a dilemma a, a lot of journalists find themselves in I don't really consider myself a journalist but I'm sort of parallel to them um, because sometimes you are approached by people who've committed a crime or stolen data and they will send you the evidence of the data that they've stolen. Maybe it's people's personal emails or it's a database 
uh, or, or some company secret and they want you to shame the business and uh, i've been approached by groups i mean the dark overlord are one which are notorious for doing this kind of thing but there are other now ransomware groups as well which aren't just encrypting your files they're also stealing data and threatening to publicize it and i feel very uncomfortable being an accessory to their crime and helping them commit their crime i i feel very uncomfortable publishing that kind of private communications on my site yeah i might get you know high on slash dot or on reddit and get hundreds of thousands of visitors or something by publishing that kind of thing but it just feels wrong to me to do it and it saddens me actually that sometimes we see journalists who publish information which has been gathered criminally through a hack um and it's other people's personal information do you remember when the fappening happened when all those female celebrities it, mostly female there were some men as well basically nude photographs of them mm -hmm. appeared online because yeah. they'd had their online accounts hacked and they were being distributed via 4chan and maybe on reddit and other places and, and there were online news sites which were publishing those sometimes censored sometimes a bit pixelated and you just think what kind of impact are you having on these individuals they may be hollywood stars or whatever but are you going too far yeah. by helping these it, it, it just felt so cheap and nasty and you're um, sort of doing their work for them a little bit as yes. well so, so when they when they approach you what kind of sales pitch do they how do they kind of deal with that how do they sort of sell that prospect i guess to you well they they, they will say we're offering you this information exclusively we'd love you to publicize that this breach has happened and here are the particularly juicy bits of the email archive oh, okay. which we think you should go and look at um on some in some occasions they will actually curate it and say these are things we found but you can download you know 100 gigabytes or whatever it is of data at this link and they'll give you a link and a password to go and grab it but there are online websites out there with much much bigger traffic than mine who will have no qualms about doing it whatsoever so i almost feel that uh, you know that the hackers will undoubtedly probably have approached other people as well because they normally want these stories to go far and wide so they will go to a american online news organizations as mm -hmm. well to get to a wider audience than the security nerds who read my blog if there was one breach that you really thought this has shaken up the foundations of boardrooms in all industries what do you think that breach would be hmm. i a couple spring to mind um and and they're, they're not sort of particularly abstract examples they're ones probably that all of your viewers have heard of already but uh but that, that rather proves the point these are ones which shook the industry i would say the nhs WannaCry outbreak so WannaCry obviously ransomware hit organizations around the world particularly badly hit the uk's national health service and caused problems there and that was such huge news that i'm sure many organizations thought crikey you know what are we doing prevent ourselves being hit by something like that that was such a such a big event uh, and thankfully um, because of what happened you know it got stopped in its tracks the other one is really an example of what not to do after you've been hacked which is the talk talk data breach mm -hmm. dido hardin the ceo handled the publicity handled the public relations she was going on television here in the uk many tv programs trying to inform people about what was going on but didn't have the facts, was out of her depth, 
she should have had some technical backup or someone else to answer those technical questions because she was incapable. And that looked really bad. And I think that sent a strong message to other companies up and down the country and maybe around the world as well, that if you're the boss of the company and you get hacked, it could be you sitting on that chair on Newsnight or the News at One answering questions about, is the data encrypted? Or do you even know yeah. if the data is encrypted or not? And it turned out that particular hack wasn't very sophisticated at all, although they tried to paint it as such. It was something which a teenager basically did via a very old technique of SQL injection. Um, so I think that was a bit of a wake-up call for organizations as well. So ransomware generally is something which has become so prevalent and can have such a big impact on organizations, stopping them from working, potentially crippling for their organization as well if they haven't got the right defenses in place, and also this how well you handle an outbreak um, yeah. and your public. Because I, I think most people can accept that a company can be hacked. Let's face it, you know, lots of organizations have suffered a breach to a lesser or greater extent. What really sets you out from others is how well you handle it. And your response, I think, will have much more impact on the success of your organization going forward in the year ahead. Definitely. And that's else. part of something I do, obviously, when I'm not doing this sort of yep. thing, is running these simulations. And it really, you know, we've run them with ports, we've run them with hospitals, we've run them with all these different companies. And one thing that really kind of hits home, I think, for me, is that how much it is a board sort of united effort as to how you handle it. Whereas I think the temptation on Twitter, at least, is to sort of launch the CISO or the security teams and say, oh, you're incompetent, you've done this, you've done this, this is terrible, this is terrible. Um, and it all becomes a bit of a free-for-all, which you must have seen. <laughs> oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, I, I'm a bit geeky. You know, I, I'm not the geekiest guy out there, but I did start off as a computer programmer. I'm quite introverted. And, you know, I, these are characteristics which I think many of us in the industry have. And it's very easy for us to be a little bit unpleasant or be antisocial. Maybe we don't use all of our greatest social skills online in particular. And it's something which depresses me is when I see people sort of dogpiling on and slagging off. I mean, I think it's legitimate to... Where, where error has occurred, where a company has fouled up and should have done better, they should be called to account. And I think if you're on the board of a company, then probably, you know, you should take a bit of flack because it yeah. was ultimately your responsibility. But I th think it's a bit mean sometimes when the customer service representative of a, of a company which has been breached, just someone who answers the tweets is being called a moron or a bellend or whatever. <laughs> it, it, it just seems... and. It, it's a really it shows us off in a really unattractive way because it's almost like we're in our ivory towers here right because we have specialist knowledge we live and breathe this stuff all the time and so we know about 2fa and we know about password managers and we know why it's a good idea to be able to for instance paste passwords into online forms for login right and i regularly see companies being slagged off because do you realize your login form doesn't allow me to paste my password in from password manager? And yeah, they're right. That's bad. They should have fixed that. But to treat the customer service person on Twitter as a cretin because they're just repeating the, the advice they've been given that, oh, it's for security, seems really wrong. And it actually yeah. ostracizes people. It doesn't get people on board. And we need to be better communicators to get across 
the importance of some of these security issues. You know, uh, I, I think sometimes we really shoot ourselves in the foot because why would anyone want to be friends with us if we're yeah. acting like, am I allowed to say assholes? Yes, say it. I, I just did. Okay, so <laughs> if, we're, if we're acting like that, then, then why, why should anyone listen to us, right? I think when we're failing at really basic security, we as in society, um, are we are we wasting our goes a little bit in terms of putting yeah. out security messaging that's you know really probably fairly unlikely in the grand scheme of attacks? So how do you kind of balance that a little bit when you're doing your writing and also smashing security? I, I certainly think how we communicate is really important. We just had on uh, one of our episodes someone who knows nothing about computer security. She's a comedian and writer, and. Uh, we got her on and we found out she didn't even have a passcode on her phone, right? <laughs> didn't have different passwords anywhere. Didn't have, our phone was permanently unlocked. And so we talked her through the process. This is how you put a fingerprint on your phone. So, you know, because the passcode is obviously going to be too painful for you. And we never even got on to 2FA, right? We began to sort of dip our toes into the waters of having a password manager or something like that but it really was baby steps and i i think we need to learn if we're going to succeed at security we need to find a way to communicate honestly and credibly with everybody because everybody has got a computer on them and we can't assume that they're going to know everything and when i see people slagging off oh you're using sms based two factor authentication yeah of course SMS-based two-factor authentication, we know, is not as good as having an app or something to do the authentication. But bloody hell, it's a lot better than having no two-factor authentication at all. Yeah. And I can't so, imagine explaining that to my parents, how to use right. the app. And then there's a timer and you have to put the code in before that goes to... It would just be a nightmare. And yeah. at least if they've got this SMS to FA they're a little bit safer. And I they're think that's what we struggle with as an industry, right? We, we don't seem to be able to conceptualize that little steps make you more secure. We aiming for this sort of unattainable standard from, from people. My view is, and I don't know if I'm going to get into trouble saying this, but my view is that we're all kind of on the spectrum, right? Everyone's on the spectrum somewhere. And it may be that those of us in the computer security industry are a little bit more one way on the spectrum mm -hmm. than the average person. I mean, it's, it's a real stereotype, but I, 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 and I'm including myself on that as well, right? So I think we, we might be a little bit like, so we're sort of setting our ways and it's like, there's a right way to do this and there's a wrong way to do it. If you're not doing it exactly as I'm telling you for 100% security, then you're an idiot and you deserve to be hacked and all the rest of it. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not a good way to think about these things. You know, we, we, we need to be a little bit more flexible and bendy about mm -hmm. these things because otherwise we're just perpetuating that stereotype. And most people will think security, data breaches, well, oh, too hard. I can't even begin to think about it. I'm, I'm just going, la, 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 la. I'm not going to listen to any of that. I'm just going to give up on all of it. So on my blog and on my podcast, we try and speak in regular, plain English, try and explain things simply in the hope of just, you know, getting everyone a little bit more secure. And hopefully making it fun as well. You know, that's the intention. Definitely fun. Definitely. Ah, oh, thank you. Well, when you're on, Lisa, it is. <laughs> I just laugh the entire <laughs> entire way through the the entire podcast. That's what we like. That's what we like. <laughs> For 30 minutes of me laughing. Um, 
yeah, it's um, it is a bit crazy. And actually thinking about sort of silo thinking and tribal thinking generally, I think in society now we are in a bit of a unique situation where we we have quite polarized societies in both the US, in the UK, and you know in Italy and all these other countries on you know left right political issues, but you know other things as well. Brexit obviously being one of them. Um, and do you think how do you think the best way to stop ourselves from falling into that is because obviously you and I are friends we share very similar political views and I'm sometimes a little aware that we quite enjoy kind of egging each other on and going yeah no you're totally right 100% yeah and it's even worse than that um so how do we kind of avoid that do you think difficult isn't it it's difficult especially when you feel that the world's going to shit you know <laughs> you feel powerless it's very easy just to make a simple joke I mean I'm guilty of this I post things on Twitter because I get frustrated and annoyed with how something in government might be going for instance um, but is that the way to convince people who don't agree with you that you're right absolutely not Mm-hmm. what it is is you're just going to get other people who fit, already feel the same as you liking and retweeting your tweet or agree or or they join in as well it it, it does marginal you know it, it does split us and we are living in a divisive world and things which have happened in my life have, have told me that you really need to try and bridge that gap you can't go around telling people that they're idiots because they don't understand security or because of their political persuasion or because they voted for him rather than her or or whatever it is Mm -hmm. um you need to try and understand what made them do that and and talk to them because most people aren't bad people most people genuinely want the same things as you they want to have a happy life they want to be successful they want to be healthy and they want their kids to be happy and healthy and have a great life as well and they just have a different view as to how you're going to get there but there's so much heat yeah yeah, yeah. now that we're all kind of on guard and we're all kind of nervous and trying to work out, well, where does he stand compared to me? And, you know, it, it, it's, it's terrible and it's breaking up families. Mm-hmm. And it's really uncomfortable to have a view that you hold challenged or read something that challenges the things that you think are right. So, for example, um, I recently read the uh, World Health Organization report on the effects of Chernobyl 30 years on. And obviously, as a case study, it's really unique because we've only ever had the opportunity to to study radiation effects over 30 years um, from this exact case. And um, as a child and growing up, as I'm sure you were the same, you were sort of always told about how devastating this was to the exclusion zone and nothing was going to survive and everything was going to be terrible. And what they've actually discovered is that actually the animals are bigger and having more babies and are healthier and living longer in that exclusion zone. The uh, flora and fauna are flourishing um, and actually it's impeded life very little. In fact, human beings have impeded life more yeah. than this radiation. And reading mm-hmm. this report challenged everything I've ever really known about that event. And I must say, I think I felt physically awkward, um, uncomfortable, because this whole thing just factually did not marry up with what yeah. I thought. Yeah, it's, it's very challenging. And I, well done you for reading it and, and exposing yourself to that. I think it does 
it, I think it's good for all of us to sometimes challenge ourselves to watch news on the channels we don't normally watch and to yeah. read newspapers that we don't normally read and to, you know, it, it's not always comfortable, but I think it's good. It's a good thing to do that. And of course, that's what we would like other people to be doing as well, right? Maybe yeah. to And maybe we'll meet somewhere in the middle a little bit because no side is 100% right. And however much you might think, let's pick a name at random, Donald Trump is a complete, right? He might occasionally say something that actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. But because of our view of him generally of being a terrible person, we would be almost blind to that if he did actually make a right decision or if he did do something. And I'm sure occasionally he does make good decisions. Yeah. Um, but, we, but, you know, it's, it's not our worldview, is it? No, totally. And, and uh, do you think that generally reporting in information security has sort of uh, improved over the years or do you think it's got more clickbaity? Oh, I think... Um, I think it has improved. Yeah, I think there's there's much more technical knowledge now amongst some of the reporters than there ever used to be 20 or even 30 years ago. And some of the things which we used to see in the tabloid press about computer viruses, I remember the Michelangelo virus, for instance, 1992, um, where it was predicted millions of PCs around the world were going to go on the blink. Um, and it, it was crazy, some of that stuff which was being said. So I do think some of it's moved on. There still is, of course, an enormous amount of clickbait out there. Um, the journalism industry generally is suffering. They're finding it hard to make money. And there's a desperate, desperate urge to get more and more people reading articles. But there are some excellent resources out there as well. And that's great. And independent journalists as well. We see people like Brian Krebs, for instance, who uh, is running a very successful blog where he's breaking news stories and he's got a lot of credibility because he finds out about data breaches before the companies who've actually been breached. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually speaking about uh, Krebs, another thing I was going to ask you. Um, so Krebs has obviously had um, a terrible time um, of sort of attackers and other people, you know, with, with I think it's called swatting um, yeah. and other threats that he's had to his life and his safety. Have you ever had any kind of really bad experience like that? I've had a couple of bad things happen. Um, I, I mean, some of them you sort of, you think are probably a joke and you don't take terribly seriously. I remember a virus writer, for instance, who said he was going to shoot me or something like that because I'd written about him or his malware. I didn't take that very seriously. More seriously, I remember once someone took my photograph and they went onto Facebook um, into a, a, an army-related Facebook group and they said things which were derogatory about the British army inside that group. Oh. And this really riled people up. Yeah. And then someone, someone said, hang on, I recognise that guy. That's Graham Cluley, who works for this security company. And then... <laughs> all hell broke loose because these people thought it was me who was posting these messages. Sure. They yeah. Contact, yeah. contact my HR department. They um, <sighs> sent threats saying they were going to burn my house down and shoot my wife. Oh these my were God. army people. At the time we were on holiday in Cambodia. So we we're on the other side of the world. So the communications weren't fantastic either. And apparently my company was receiving messages left, right and center. And when I went to Facebook and said, look, I've had death threats from these people and things, you know, can you do something about this? And Facebook sort of went, well, you know, it's freedom of speech, isn't it? Mm -hmm. 
And the only point at which Facebook took any action was when I said, but they've used my photograph and that's my copyright. And they said, oh, copyright? Okay. Yeah, we'll do something about that then. So that's a good tip then. If you're ever getting trolled online, just hope to God that they use something <laughs> you can pull on to say this is copyright. Because I've had it as well. I've reported stuff. And they say, no, that doesn't violate our terms of use. And yeah. you start to think, what on earth are your terms of use? When this kind of stuff can happen, it's insane. I, I've, I've, as a consequence of what happened to me, I mean, fortunately, nothing really happened to us, but it was just an inconvenience. But, um, but I mean, there were really unpleasant things. Like some people were saying that I was a paedophile and things like this, and they posted up pictures of me where they'd photoshopped my head onto other photographs and things. You know, it was really not very pleasant. Um, but I met um, young women who I think their previous partners had fallen out with them, and they'd posted up their contact details claiming that they were prostitutes or, or, or sex workers or, or whatever it was. And they had found it very difficult to get Facebook to take any action whatsoever. And yeah. I think I had a slight advantage in so much as I had the ear of some journalists because of the field I work in. So I was able to apply some pressure that way. That's the other piece of advice, by the way, I would give people is if you have a problem with a technology company, a social network, and you can't get through to them, can't get anyone to answer the phone, sometimes it can be good to go to a journalist because they will go to the PR department or the tech company and say, we're going to create a stink about you, Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, because you're not properly looking after your community. That's and really then smart. it might be a better way into the company. They won't, they won't like that I said that, but in my experience, that's a way to do it. <laughs> Journalists' inboxes across the UK are just getting flooded <laughs> now with stuff, all thanks to... And, it, and make sure you hashtag Graham Cooley, okay? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. yeah obviously totally. what you have to do. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the show, Graham. I think there are some really complicated issues that we've discussed and we definitely haven't solved, solved them at all. Um, so Graham has an amazing blog, which you can find at grahamcooley.com. He has um, a podcast, which we've just spoken about, Smashing Security. Go and listen to that for sure. Um, and you've also got a, an amazing newsletter called GCHQ. The little yes. Asterisk. And this is, this is GCHQ. This is the other name for the podcast Pleasure Palace is GCHQ. You're seeing is... inside GCHQ right now. Very, very. That's going to be the title is, of this episode. Is, is there any other GCHQ? No. No, no I, I think, think so. you can basically copyright that name. I think that, that would be fine. Um, so where can people go to keep up to date with what is going on in Graham's world? Um, well, my website, grahamclearly.com. Uh, or, yeah, I'm, I hang out on Twitter a lot. Twitter's the one social network which I kind of like. Um, mm -hmm. Me too. So I am G Cluley, G C L U L E Y. I recently created an Instagram account. I think I followed you, Lisa. Good. I've got no idea how to use it. Your okay, Instagram so gonna... is just off the hook, though. I just love you, it. You, you, you are doing things. I don't. I'm. Oh my god. I, I don't know what I'm pressing or swiping or I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Stories. What are they? I don't. I don't know how. You're gonna have to teach me sometime. We'll do it live so that everyone can <laughs> <enjoy> watch, <laughs> watching. <laughs> I think I'm too old for it. I think I should, there should be, you know, where they ask you your age to make sure you're over 13. I think they should also ask, are you over 40? And yeah. then say, to be honest, mate, this ain't for you. <laughs> so go and follow him on Instagram. It will get better. That's what he's saying. Um, <laughs> his Instagram game is just going up and up and up. Um, 
But thanks for tuning in and everything we've mentioned in this episode, the links will be in the description below. Uh, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Thank you very much for tuning in, everyone.